We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Man, do we have a treat for you all this week. We are joined by the 14th undisputed world chess champion, the man who toppled the mighty Kasparov, one of the top 10 highest chess rated players of all time in 1996. He became the youngest player ever to become the world's highest rated player. That record was only broken 14 years later by a gentleman named Magnus Carlsen. He has won way more tournaments than I can name. And as luck would have it, he is out with a brand new chessable course called Thinking in Chess, a how-to guide, which I have really been enjoying digging into uh, in the lead up to this interview. So we'll be discussing his career and his course and his recent no-castling match with Grandmaster Viswanathan Anand and so much more. So let's welcome him to the show, Grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. The introduction was rather long and, uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, I'm a patriarch or legend. <laughs> In fact, okay, I, just, I, I was always playing chess and, uh, uh, well, yeah, I never 
never had any really i never thought that it's going to be as successful as as you call it i'm not even sure if it was i mean but if you say so i mean probably you you're right <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway well, the most important i always enjoyed well, to hear you say that that you thought it wouldn't be as successful, I actually I was planning on talking about the match with um with Anand first, but it makes me wonder. So if if we think back to the first Olympiad where you were only an FM and uh, Kasparov and the Russian team selected you to to join that to join the Olympiad, and then you of course historically had just an amazing performance in that Olympiad. How did it feel to be selected? Were you shocked, and did you feel like you belonged at that time? Oh, I, com- I was completely shocked, of course. I, I didn't feel that I belonged there. Actually, now I understand Barry, and uh, if I would be in his position, I would also give it a try, because now I, I understand that I was okay, a very uh, good player already. Yeah, But as uh, at that time, I was not aware of it. I mean, I thought I'm kind of talented young guy who is trying still to get uh, to learn something about chess, and then all of a sudden, not even being a grandmaster, I mean, for me it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect it at all when I remember during the closing ceremony of the Dortmund tournament where Gary was also playing, but he played in the main tournament in 1992. I won the Open, he won the main tournament. It was a very strong Open with many strong grandmasters. And uh, I just uh, made my third GM norm. So, okay, just finally I got it. I was very happy about it. At least, at least I will one day become a grandmaster and, and that, that, that is a title nobody is going to take away from me so already like uh, one of the goals i had from the childhood is fulfilled so and then all of a sudden as a trainer of our national team grandmaster as a wife he came to me during the closing ceremony and then he he said that he wants to talk to me and yeah he told me he told me that they want to have me in the national men's team i mean for me <laughs> i was totally puzzled I said yes, but uh, I think I just asked him if, if he's sure that, that this is the right thing. <laughs> but he said, yeah, God is also approved, so it's like we both think it's a good choice. So I said, okay, if you think so, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve. And then, of course, you had a 2,900 performance rating, so I guess I guess you were ready. Yes, I was not sure about it, but you know, I, I actually always play chess and uh, like this, and especially when you are young, uh, you you, I think it's more even normal, yeah. To uh, well, I never thought of the, you know, uh, of the result of what I, am I good enough, not good enough. I just come and play, yeah. I I like playing. I try and okay, if I'm good enough, okay, surprise, isn't surprise. If not. Well, what to do? It uh, means I have to work more, or maybe even I'm simply not good enough in general. So I, I always took it easy. I mean, yeah, that was maybe my strong point. That, uh, uh, yeah, in in a certain sense, yeah. I mean, of course, uh, if you are very determined about your result, uh, about your very concrete goals, it also gives you energy and the push and so on. But uh, from other point of view, it uh, makes you tremble, so to say, in the right moment. I never cared. Okay, if I lose, I lose. If I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. That's it. I mean, so uh, that's why, yeah, I actually came there. I just played. I I absolutely didn't know what to expect, uh, whether I will be playing well, showing good results, or maybe total uh, disaster will come. Okay, I just played, and uh, I realized that I'm probably 
already somewhere in the middle of the tournament because I started six out of six. So I realized that probably I'm ready for this level already. Uh, right. <laughs> Well, that's that's amazing to hear. Now, hearing you talk about, okay, you just showed up and just played, and maybe maybe that attitude was part of what enabled you to have all the success that you subsequently had. Um, and you talk in your chessable course memorably about what a big influence Karpov was on you and how that was the only book you had as a kid. But I'm curious, uh, Vladimir, how hard were you working on your chess um, away from the board? I mean, you love the game, you played a lot, but were you reading for hour after hour or um, was it more of a sort of um, casual, I don't know if casual is the right word, but uh, less um, rigid approach? Uh, it was not hard. I mean, uh, even if it was a lot, maybe, yeah, uh, time-wise, but it was not hard because I liked it. I mean, that's very important. Yeah, I, I remember as a kid, I I mean, nobody ever, my parents never forced me to study chess. I mean, which, by the way, happened with some other players, I, I know. But with me, I was, I was forcing them to buy me books and so on, so... I always enjoy it, and when you like it, when you find it interesting, it takes you. Uh, then, uh, yeah, especially as a kid or young man, you have lots of energy, so you can work for hours. And uh, I have never, first of all, had a routine in my work. I mean, never had a kind of plan, you know, how many hours uh, should I work today or tomorrow. Uh, and also, I never really uh, checked the time, I mean, when I was working. I don't know how much I was working. Maybe three hours a day, maybe six. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't notice the time. Yeah? <laughs> I was just working. So uh, in this sense, I was lucky maybe because because I liked the game. This is a very important. I mean, really liked it uh, in the sense not the not only the result, which of course everybody wants to be successful in what he's doing, but I actually like the process. Also, strangely enough, the process of analyzing, working on chess, not only playing but also working. And uh, so then when you like what you do, time runs much faster and things are going much easier. That's uh, what I think. And it's amazing to hear that perspective. Um, and I'm sure some people uh, wish that, that they could feel the same way because some people, they, they love chess and they work hard on it, but they do try to have to measure the time. But I mean, it's amazing to hear that you you sort of describe yourself as like a just a little boy uh, lost enjoying what enjoying what he's doing and then obviously eventually become a man. Which um, we've got a ton of questions from uh, Patreon supporters of the podcast, so um, we're gonna I'm gonna try to cover a lot of topics in the in the time that we have, Vladimir. So I'd like to bring it forward to the no castling match with uh, Grandmaster Viswanathan Anand, which of course recently concluded. You guys played four games. Uh, he beat you in the first game, and the last three games were draws. Um, what was your overall impression? Well, I guess, sorry, I should explain uh, just for any listeners who aren't familiar before I get to the question. So Vladimir has been at the forefront of suggesting new chess variants that can be played. Um, and one of the one of the ones that he deemed possibly the best was no castling chess. And of course, this was in collaboration with uh, DeepMind, the creators of AlphaZero, who used uh, their program to test all these variants and see which ones led to the most sporting chess. So here we are, and these two legends played each other in a match um, using a game, the same rules as regular chess, except you're not allowed to castle. Um, so, Vladimir, what was your impression of this match and of no castling chess as you got to play it <clears throat> under match conditions? Yeah, first of all, uh, I, uh, it was a 
experiment for me. I mean, not that I care so much about the results uh, because I'm not playing chess professionally, anyways, um, anymore. But uh, I, I want to try it myself. I already had a very clear idea about it because when we started with the mind and we even published uh, a big, uh, you know, uh, work, a scientific uh, study on it, like 100 pages. Um, uh, so, and it was just one of the possible variants, and I, I already understood that it's very interesting. But playing it, yeah, it was good. I think it, it uh, uh, fully met my expectations. I think it's a very interesting variant of chess, one of a few interesting variants, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, everybody can play it as well. So, uh, I, I should maybe uh, talk a bit about how did I, I mean, start this whole project if you want yeah that'd be great uh, yeah i mean the, the main idea was that of course uh, chess is a great game and it's incredibly rich and, and interesting game but uh, as a professional chess player and i'm believe me i'm by far not the only one uh, i started to feel especially when engines were getting stronger and stronger that on the high professional level uh, well, it's becoming more and more difficult actually to get a game. So the content, so to say, there is much less content in a game. It's not, a, you know, it's not a problem uh, or fault of professional chess players, but simply that many openings are deeply analyzed, and it's very difficult not only to get an advantage with white. That's already uh, end of the story. It's already clear that there is no advantage. I mean that it's objectively a drawish game, but also simply to find a way how to. How to get uh, how to pose at least some practical problems for the opponents, and we see it quite often in top events that quite some games are just finishing basically. Uh, basically, there is not much content in the game, yeah, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, time now in your preparation is uh, needed just you know you just for very mechanical work like analyzing so to say pushing the button and then memorizing all those computer variations. And uh, after that, uh, trying to repeat them before games, but two, three hours, every top player knows that he needs to spend a couple of hours before each game just to repeat these lines, just not to forget, because if you forget and your opponent uh, remembers, then you're done in a sharp position uh, very often. And all this is basically quite often is, is finally in order to come there and to make all the best moves from your computer, your opponent is doing the same, and then maybe you make a few more moves, but basically it's already clear that the game ends in a draw, and to have a draw and to prepare for the next game, which will very possibly uh, go into the same scenario. So somehow I got it. Yeah, I think chess is not about it, not about that. Uh, I'm only talking about a very top professional level. I mean, where really the knowledge and the level of players is so high that, uh, yeah, it's actually difficult to find the find any way to play your opponent sometimes yeah. so yeah that came to this i came to certain ideas how to change chess a little bit i mean especially considering uh, quite a significant success of uh, fisher random chess then um, i thought so it's clear that people they want more content yeah spectators also they want more content into the game yeah that actually i started to think about ideas what can be done that that we, let's say, top chess players uh, can start to play as early as possible. Yeah, I mean, 
to to take out this whole uh, unnecessary theory because basically yeah and to make the game longer in a way yeah so so players start to play on their own from as early as possible so which would definitely finally lead to more uh, decisive games and actually simply the most important is not even draws or something the most important is content yeah that there is more games with uh, real content and uh, that was one of the variations and we have another another few interesting variations and we checked it with DeepMind with, uh, with this company we made quite quite some work trying to make uh, the alpha zero analyze it play games and so on because it's also very important when you're trying a new variation of chess to be sure that the balance of the game is still there because for instance in fisher random there are some positions where in which white's advantage is, is almost decisive starting positions yeah objectively uh, because of position of pieces so was what, what was important is to see first of all aesthetically how the games are going and also if the final balance of the game is there and it's it's practically the same, I mean, more or less equal game, yeah, maybe 51, 49 for white as in standard chess, but but all this theory is going uh, away and 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 it's not uh, it's not going to be very soon before I think tens of years before it gets to the level of modern chess theory. Uh, well, because of because it's about patterns and all patterns are different. So even if computer will tell you what is the best move according to computer it's still you don't get it yeah you don't understand what to do in an equal position which arises i mean in a standard chess every stop chess play he knows by heart exactly where to put pieces what kind of pieces to exchange i mean what to do in this type of game it's a absolutely unknown territory and you have to start creating uh, from yourself yeah and and by yourself and so i, I saw the games uh, between alpha zero playing uh, itself and uh, they were extremely entertaining. I mean, I, they were really fantastic. Very. So I got excited and I tried. To, we played the match with Visha, and I think also the games were very interesting. All four games, and uh, that is happening quite rarely nowadays on the top level. Finally, we actually had three draws. Although normally, of course, there should be more resulting games. It was more accident, but that that is not important. It's not about the result. It's about the content of the games. But I believe everybody who who wants to to check these games, they will find, yeah, the awful games were very hard fought and a lot of original ideas, tactics, attacks, counter-attacks, and I think it's very interesting chess, but I, I mean, again, my idea, the last thing I want to say is not to remove classical chess, of course not, it's just to give an opportunity, you know, a little bit, slightly different variation, which actually is chess, in fact, it is chess, because, uh, I want to say, by the way, I went through the history of the game, and actually the castle didn't exist. I mean, it's a, quite a late invention in chess. There was no castle in chess yet. So uh, I have my uh, certain ideas why why they installed this rule, but actually the original chess uh, castle was not there, yeah, was not existing. But a anyways, yes. Yeah, so it's still chess, uh, but uh, it requires much more. Uh, creativity and uh, depth of thought and uh, from chess players and you start to play much earlier to play really not to perform the computer preparation moves but really to play chess and uh, yes so I, I i like it i mean i i but okay again it's for everyone to decide it's just i personally like it i wanted to give this to the chess community and uh, if they like it okay, if one day they all like to play it like this, no castle or other variants, great.
great. If not, there is nothing wrong with with uh, standard chess uh, either. Yeah, we had a, a question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast, Kartik Tadapali, which I think you basically just answered, which is, um, will game modes like no castling chess really change the game? So it sounds like you're suggesting that's not for you to decide, but it's just another option. Well, you see, again, what what is good about it, yeah, I also thought that it can be actually introduced in regular tournaments, uh, you know, because the world of chess is very, well, we must admit, very conservative, yeah? But, uh, uh, you know, if you are looking at many sports like volleyball, football, there are always some small adjustments to, to the rules. I mean, you know it all the time. Ice hockey. I mean, most of sports, there, there are some adjustments all the time. So and in chess, for some reason, we have this idea that the smallest adjustment is a crime. Yeah, it's like a betrayal of the <laughs> game. But actually, it is not. It, it doesn't change anything. The game is still the same. Uh, so uh, that's why I think that we can at least try it. And uh, um, also, it is a way to avoid uh, opening series. I mean, to make actually top-level events much more entertaining for public. And uh, I am afraid, what is my fear, uh, and it's, I think, justified, I'm quite a qualified person, uh, seeing how engines and theory develop, that actually it's a matter of time when basically... It will be almost impossible to win a game against a very top player if he doesn't want to risk. Yeah, basically, and that is and that actually has quite uh, quite dangerous consequences. So before we are there, and I'm sure we will be there, it's a matter of time only. Before we are there, I think it's better maybe to try to take some measures and uh, to secure that chess will still be interesting and public will not uh, move away from this game beautiful game and go watch something else because there are just too many draws uh, or, or, or no content. And just the last thing, yeah, sorry, it takes a lot of time, but uh, my answer, but the last thing, because what, why, why, what struck me at some point, I started to think about it. You know the game of checkers, yeah? Yes. Yeah, but uh, when was the last time you've, you've, you've seen something in media about checkers? Yeah, never. I mean, I can't. Never. I, yeah. As a chess player, it's only when we're talking about Ivanchuk or something. Yeah, yeah. But I, but in general, in media, there is nothing about checkers. But it's a fantastic game. It's a great game. Uh, as a kid, I liked it also. Why? And before, I remember in the 90s, I always saw something about checkers. Not much, but still, it was existing in the media field. But the last time I remember my own experience, the last time I've seen something about checkers was a report about the World Championship match in checkers. Well, basically, it was already such a level of players that basically they're making all draws. There was simply no decisive game. So usually, all championship matches would come like 16 draws, then another four draws in a rapid chess, and then maybe somebody wins in blitz, yeah? And that would decide the title. And, uh, okay, then you see the problem is that uh, checkers is a game which used to be at least liked a lot by public, by, you know, it's played in many... You know, in many families, it's a very nice game, especially for kids. But it's almost disappeared, basically. It's like almost dead, the game. I, it's very sad for me. And uh, and I, I'm sure that this is the reason, because because people just lost interest when, when you know, you see that, you know, it's uh, there is not much going on in, in the 
level, yeah, that all games are ending in a draw. I mean, we are still far from it, definitely chess, but I don't want, I mean, I don't want to end up in the same way. And uh, that is one of the reasons why I uh, decided to spend time on this project. Excellent. Well, I agree. The games were quite entertaining and it'll be interesting to to see how, how it unfolds. Um, and I, I know you've mentioned in, in interviews that you're talking mainly about the professional level. It's not necessarily that at the amateur level, we play badly enough that there can still be plenty of, of mistakes yeah. and uh, decisive results. And, and as you say, it's not just about decisive results, but uh, entertaining games. But yeah, at the professional level, I see what you're saying. And that but, gets into... But you see, sorry, just, just, yeah, because as, as in checkers happen, what I mean that unfortunately, what happens in professional level can really damage amateur level, like with checkers. Yeah, there are much less right. playing checkers now at home because uh, there is much media, media support of checkers. And finally, you know, it goes to all levels. And of course, for chess, although any player he wants, he can play without castle. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, of any level. But yeah, there is definitely no problem at all uh, playing a regular chess, obviously. But I'm afraid that it will go, you know, up and down. Yeah. I mean, it, it can happen. At least. Sorry, sorry. That's a good. No, that's fine, um, and that's a good insight. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, Vladimir, and then I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on uh, computer chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by aimchess.com. If you haven't checked out aimchess.com by now, what are you waiting for? What aimchess does is it collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you actionable advice of how to improve your game. It might be to work on a specific opening or to get better at end games or improve your time management or whatever it may be. And then it gives you related puzzles to help you improve that specific skill. They are constantly improving the site. They recently added blindfold tactics, time management training, common checkmate patterns. So there's so much to do there. If you decide to subscribe, be sure to use the promo code PERPETUAL30. Details are in the show notes for aimchess.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So we are back and we're going to dive into the next question from the Patreon mailbag. I'm going to try to power through these. So this question is from Craig Mallon and does relate to computer chess and the future of chess. And he asks, to what extent have the games of AlphaZero and other AI engines influenced your play? Do you feel like the ideas and styles of those programs are transferable to human chess? So really two separate questions there. Well, definitely it has a huge influence. It made a huge influence not only... Uh, negative, which I consider negative, which is just, uh, you know, learning lots of uh, forced variations and trying to memorize them. But uh, also positive, which is definitely it uh, opened new dimensions of understanding of the game for, for chess play. Definitely the chess players understand game with, uh, uh, in this computer era, stronger and stronger computers, I mean, engines become, uh, I mean, they bring, they you know, explain us, so to say, a lot. And, uh, uh, of course, the understanding of chess is broadening uh, from from uh, uh, human players. So there is a positive uh, uh, 
side of it. Also, one rather positive side is that nowadays every uh, amateur, yeah, he can follow games with the engine, and then he can he or she can understand uh, what is going on. Yeah, I mean, in some way. I mean that, that you know that if you are just sitting home and there is no engine, something is going on, and if your level is not professional, it's quite difficult to understand what's going on. Here you can have a understanding who is better and so on. What was a mistake? From other point of view, it has also negative sides. But in general, yeah, there are lots of positive things. And about uh, it, did it change the game of human players? Definitely, yes, definitely. Okay, um, and of course. You're well known for the influence that your own game has had um, on opening theory in particular. Um, I know that uh, Peter Hein Nielsen and uh, Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson, they've done a th uh, series on the top 50 players of all time. And they were talking about your outsized influence, of course, um, with the Berlin defense and uh, the Catalan and many other openings. And of course, now computers are kind of confirming what you... Uh, what you found. So we had a question from uh, Tyron Ross Price, another supporter of the podcast. And Tyron asks, uh, uh, who do you credit with influencing or, or helping you in advancing your opening understanding? So when you came up with this stuff, most notably the Berlin, of course, in the match against Kasparov, um, were computers involved or was it just your own sort of grunt work? No, computers were very weak at that time. I can tell you they were actually uh, disturbing me. Yeah. I mean, they were uh, discouraging because at that time, I can tell you, I remember, let's say, there was the best program was Fritz, if I remember well, and it would uh, assess the position after Queen takes D8, King takes D8, beginning of the Berlin endgame, as almost plus one for white. So it would, uh, you know, it would say that actually uh, uh, it's simply unplayable, basically. But I felt it shouldn't be. I, I, I had a clear feeling that. Uh, the end game is at least not so bad. I mean, uh, and uh, so I was fighting against the computer uh, in a way. I was trying to fight the computer and to prove my my concept. Uh, so no, computers didn't uh, help at all in it. And actually, what is funny, uh, I, I've I've read it and it was kind of more funny. I mean, I, I don't have problems with ego or something, so it was more funny episode that actually when I learned that I was there after many, many hours and getting higher and higher level, finally it uh, it decided that Berlin is the best defense, the best opening choice against E4, you know, of all. So fine, now on the, yeah. best, on the highest level, it actually plays Berlin all the time because it considers it the best opening, which is also, I mean, I'm sure the other, other even which are as good as Berlin, so it's very general. But uh, what I mean, why, why? Yeah, it was my speciality. Uh, I don't know. Everybody has uh, his talent, you know, some speciality, special talent in chess, and maybe mine was this. I first of all, I like, you know, what is very important. I think it's a big difference compared to maybe many other even players, even top level players, that I always, I always considered opening work as a kind of creative work. So for me, working on openings was not, uh, was the idea was not to build a practical repertoire, which which I will use to win games, yeah? It was not only this, by far not that. It was more just that I want, I mean, I want to understand chess, I want to learn chess. So it was interesting for me, so in itself, yeah? In itself. 
And that's why when you have this approach, then you are trying to invent new things because it's kind of boring just to repeat the best moves after Kaspar or Karpov and just to build repertoire hope in them. I found it boring. So I always try to find my own ways. And as I, uh, since I've mentioned already that I, I liked also working on chess, uh, then it came together and that it probably helped me to find quite a number of, or, you know, to re, uh, reconsider or even to reopen quite a number of openings or different opening lines, which are still staying there and with years, which proved to be really uh, still good, like Sveshnikov or Petrov also, and, uh, and so on and so on. So, yeah, it happened like this, but probably that was the reason. And uh, you and Richardson, of course, you had a team of uh, grandmasters helping you in your match against Kasparov. Did did how much did they help with the Berlin in particular? And do you remember was it your idea? Um, uh, just just looking for a little more info on on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it was my idea. Yeah, I mean, I always felt uh, that I, I haven't played it uh, that time. I played Petrov and Sveshnikov, Rauser. Um, but I always had a feeling looking at this uh, Berlin endgame that it's, it shouldn't be too bad. I don't know. I don't understand why it's bad. Yeah? Because there are two bishops and, uh, well, endgame, I mean, I, I, it was kind of, I have the feeling that I never touched the opening. Actually, then I understood uh, uh, why why I had this feeling. I think it's, a, it's an optical mistake in a way. Uh, what I mean is that uh, because when you look at this position after, let's say, you change on d8, king takes d8, then you play king e8, as usually people used to play. I mean, uh, the problem is that in your mind, you it's a bit, uh, you know, you're a bit confused because uh, the big difference is black cannot castle. And usually with king on e8, you can castle. So basically, it looks much better than, than it is because, of course, if black wouldn't be able to castle, then he would be just slightly better in this, in this endgame. But, uh, but, op- but, you know, when you look at it, it's not so deeply in your mind because you think that you can castle, yes? So that somehow I always was curious why it's considered to be uh, uh, such a, well, sort of uh, dubious opening or, I mean, uh, uh, so then I understood that things are not so easy when I started working on it because you cannot castle and it makes it a bit more troublesome. The situation, but uh, but still, I felt like still, even I was going against the machine, which would say that, and I think that was also a trap which maybe Gary fought into, because I'm sure that he was repeating and repeating this Berlin because mainly computer was just saying that it's better for white, and and you know, and uh, and it's very principal line, and it's objectively better, yeah, according to machine. But then, okay, bad luck uh, for Gary. Computers were wrong. They, they can be wrong. I think they still can be wrong, huh. and especially at that time. So so you shouldn't have trusted machine maybe too much, uh, at least back then. But yeah, it was my own idea because uh, then I just, when I came, I mean, that was for me pretty clear that especially for the match against Gary, it's the best choice just because also because of the style, you know, uh, I was quite always quite a strong endgame player. And uh, Gary was, of course, strong in every field, but it was not his best, you know. I mean, of course, also very strong in endgames, but clearly uh, he had even stronger points, yeah. So I felt like, okay, it should, it should, it's a good surprise. It's kind of surprise weapon. It's maybe not as bad as as, as it looks, and, and it fits my, my match strategy. So for me, frankly, was no 
absolutely no doubt that it's a that it's a good choice unless it's really bad. You know, it's like there is a clear way for white to get an advantage. And that's why when I started working on it, when I, I just understood that at least it's not so clear. I mean, yeah, I, uh, I understood that things are not so rosy. It's not a, it's not so easy to equalize either, but there is no obvious way for white to get an advantage. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated, strange position. And that for me, there was no anymore, no doubt that I'm going to play it. You've got some a lot of <clears throat> excuse me a lot of amazing insights there that I'd like to to follow up on. Um, number one is with Kasparov. Um, so you mentioned that maybe he was following the machine too much and he was unable to find an edge. Um, but there was also some sort of strange. Um, you had a lot. He had a decent number of short draws with with White after you got off to an early lead. Do you do you have any theory on on what happened there? Do you think that uh, just you you got in his head or or what do you think happened to 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 make that uh transpire well because yeah first of all i think he he lost a bit of confidence obviously which is normal everybody would yeah if the situation you know uh it's the first time this match it somehow started very well for me if you remember i won the second game rather convinced me and uh i mean let's say after four games or six games uh, whatever I also actually missed wins in fourth and sixth game uh, uh, with White. So the, actually the score was not too bad. It was just minus one for Gary. But I think uh, that's what I think now that uh, looking back, that actually uh, what was more difficult to hold, I mean, more difficult to take for him was that actually, and then maybe this was the first time in all his World Championship matches, that let's say after six games, he's playing worse. You know, I mean, it's not that he's just minus one accidentally. That's not a problem. You can always win game. But actually, he feels like he's, he's uh, inferior in this particular match. I mean, I don't say in general. but And that is a very difficult feeling, feeling to take, especially from such a player who is absolutely not used to this. Yeah, uh, And uh, that was maybe that shaped his confidence. And also, yes, he... He started to be very, uh, very, very, um, how to say, cautious. Uh, but of course, the short draw was, in, was uh, quite a lot of, of short draws he was making just because he couldn't get anything out of the opening. And then when the position was equal, he, I think it was in a way right decision because, you know, in this situation in the match when you're minus one, actually not losing a second game is more important than winning a game because minus uh -huh. two situation becomes really dramatic. And and minus one, especially since he had draws in the match, yeah? so in case if it was 8-8, eight, eight, he would keep the title. It's almost nothing. So you can always get your chance. And But when you're minus two already, it's really becoming very critical. Yes, so I think he is a very experienced match player. He understood it and he didn't want to take too much risk before you know, before uh, the last games of the match. So, I, I mean, so there are some quite logical explanations. There is nothing uh, mystical in it. You shouldn't search for, for some, you know, outside of chess explanations. I, I think it was pretty, yeah, pretty, uh, I would say, uh, normal and also quite expected from me. Yeah. I mean, I knew he's not going to take much risk before before, but then he lost uh, the game 10, and then already he was going all in, and actually it was putting a lot of pressure on me in the last uh, part of the match. Okay. Yeah, I didn't have any crazy outside theories, but I did think that maybe since 
Kasparov sort of had anointed you in the 90s, as we mentioned with the Olympiad team. And then, of course, you worked with him in the 95 match with Anand, which I want to circle back to. Um, So I thought that maybe because he had sort of felt all along that maybe you were going to be the person that would topple him, that when you got an early lead, there was like a sense of fatalism that maybe set in. Well, this sense of fatalism can be. But again, uh, yeah, I think he uh, respected me a lot as a chess player, maybe even too much. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, because I, I always felt, I always thought that, for instance, Risha Nant is not worse than me at all in any sense, yeah? But for some reason, right. in two of us, he always, like, somehow was valuing me, I could feel higher a bit, yeah? Uh, for no particular reason, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but, uh, of course, it, yeah, but it's also, I it's not only this, but yeah, sometimes it's, you never know what is going on in your head, and, and you have, yeah, some... Somehow he felt like, uh, yeah, it wasn't, I always, when I played him, even in the 90s, he was never so confident as playing with other players. I noticed it, strangely enough, because even even before the match, we had quite a few games when, we, as White, he made short draws with me. I mean, just played the opening, uh, there was nothing special, and then he would just offer a draw or something, you know. So he had a lot of respect, so it was, yeah, I mean... Uh, I think his his game, besides, of course, he's absolutely brilliant chess player and uh, chess is phenomenal, but also a big part of it maybe was this uh, kind of confidence, yeah, and, and, you know, kind of destroying the confidence of your opponent. And probably he felt in a way that, I I mean, he cannot destroy my confidence because I don't have any. <laughs> there is nothing to <laughs> I just come there and play chess. And for me, you know, always playing Gary or other a great players was, uh, you know, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity. You know, I always was very happy when playing Kari. I, I was, I, I mean, to fear, why to fear? I mean, I know he's great, he's better than me, let's say, yeah, in the 90s especially, and okay, if I lose, I lose, but I have such an opportunity to play with a great player and to learn from him and to try my best, you know. So I was always, I, I never had even a shade of fear or or, you know, something. And that was maybe something quite unusual uh, because most of players, you know, they still maybe care a bit more about results or they have this idea about how strong is your, is, my, is your opponent. I actually never had it in my life. I can open your secret. I never cared. I mean, okay, <laughs> even if, if my opponent is stronger than me, but in one particular game, I'm good enough to... To, to win one particular game always, yeah, against any player, any color in one particular game. So why not this game will be exactly that that one? So that was my my understanding. Okay, maybe he's better than me, but I have my chance and I'm just trying to use it. And if not, hey, he's better than me, he wins. Congratulations, great. So that's why uh, maybe it was a very kind of, yeah, again, uh, special, unusual approach. And uh, he didn't feel this, Mm, how to say this psychological advantage, which he usually had and felt probably, yeah, during games with other players, and that also was maybe shaking a bit his confidence and making him not kind of uncomfortable, but yeah, I, I mean, was a bit is was a little bit out of his normal routine in a way playing me. That's my expi- one of possible explanations. But first of all, he knows better himself if he would ever tell it, <laughs> of course. I don't know, but uh, in any case, uh, it is as it is, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but you know, I can tell you last thing about it is that all players, they have the minotaurs, yeah, the kind of the nemesis, it calls, yeah, the players who are very difficult to play with for no special reason, yeah. 
just can you just play badly against this player. I have mine as well, and every top player has such a such a guy in his pocket who who is not better maybe than than some others, but for some reason, especially against him, you are doing badly for some reason. And and it's like it's like a fate, you know. <laughs> you just cannot do anything about it. I mean, you can still win games from time to time, but all in all, it's a very difficult opponent for you. And I felt that Gary, it was from the very beginning because I managed to beat him already when I was 17, you know. Actually, at some point, I won three games against him in, in a matter of five months. Three games, you know. I mean, he was usually losing maybe two, three a year. And he lost to me when I think in 94, was it? Yeah, in 94, so I was just 18. So he lost three times again. So it's like, yeah, and maybe it was also something which shook his confidence somehow yeah because somehow he felt that yeah i mean i'm this kind of guy uh who is for some mystical reason yeah yeah he cannot he cannot find keys yeah for some reason okay well thanks for those amazing insights yeah and just one more thing tangentially related to this topic when you mentioned the fact that you sort of overrode the computer evaluation um, in your assessment of the Berlin against Kasparov um, and mentioned that it's still important today. I wondered, is there anyone that you notice in, in the modern game who has a tendency to sort of look deeper than the engine and find uh, creative opening ideas? Well, now it's becoming more and more difficult, and that's why I came up with those variants of chess, because computers are far, way stronger than at the time, and uh, almost always correct in a way if you just push 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 the button yeah but the the point is that you know i think uh, yeah i see that not not everyone uh, maybe not even more than not even the majority even of top players especially young they understand that it's not about so much the objective assessment of the computer you know so you know okay equal if it's equal it's still a game Finally, you have to play a game. And if the position is not comfortable for you, if you don't feel comfortable, so to say, you better play slightly worse position, but you, which you feel, uh, which you like in a way, which suits your style, and uh, and uh, you feel comfortable with, then completely equal, but you uh, somehow don't know what to do in this position. And that element is very important, I believe. And I'm and I see that, for instance, Magnus he understands it very well, and he's. Very careful about it, uh, I, I'm sure. And, and uh, but most of, especially very young players, for them actually the goal of of their preparation and chess analysis is is to achieve zero zero with black or zero point one with white, and that is uh, huh. that means good preparation. But uh, I uh, even when I give some sessions to talented young kids, I always explain them that it's not the goal, uh, not the goal at all of your preparation. Yeah. Uh, the goal is, is of course, not to get too bad position out of the opening, but finally to, yes, to, to get the feeling of the of the coming position in the middle games, because from some point on you will have to play it over the board. And who cares if it's equal according to computer? Who can make calculate variations 50 moves ahead and make 10 only moves without any problem? I mean, we humans mm -hmm. cannot. So, so you know, you have to understand that if if you are a, a positional player, probably it's one story is equal equal in Queen's Gambit, another story is, is zero zero in a sharp. I don't know neither. It's totally different story. Yeah. So yeah, that's why yeah, those kind of small things are still mm, I think missing in in uh, preparation of especially young players. Uh, yeah, they, 
sometimes don't get this you know this uh, this feeling and that's why old so to say old experienced players like magnus i can see i can even clearly see how well he's using it so he uh, so they say that he's trying to he's not really playing for open advantage no it's not this he he he's playing uh, for middle game advantage yeah so he tries to get those zero zero which are uh, which are uh, especially good against this particular opponent because he knows that he is not going to play it as well and against other guy he would go to another zero zero position but but because he understands i think very well this idea that uh, that basically you know um yeah it's it's about uh, your type of position your style your abilities as a chess player and not about additional 0 0.1 uh, according to stockfish you know that is not so important for the outcome of the game Okay, great, great insights. Thank you. And Vladimir, we're going to take one more break to hear from our sponsors, and then I'd like to talk about your great new chessable course. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to quiz you and make sure that you remember whatever tactical patterns or opening sequences that you're working on. They have a huge catalog of great books from top flight authors, both for purchase. And if you check for their short and sweet courses, you can find tons of free content. Speaking of free content, Chessable, of course, has also recently launched an adult improvement focused chess podcast called How to Chess with yours truly hosting it. Check for it on Chessable's YouTube channel, and you can also subscribe on the podcast platforms. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. And the course, of course, is called Thinking in Chess, a How-To Guide. In the introduction, Vladimir says, and I quote, I would like to share with you my vision of positional play, my personal decision-making method, and many more things. In a word, to share with you my chess zen. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I've been really enjoying the course. Um, obviously, for one of the, the best players of all time, the material is going to be reasonably high level. He, uh, Vladimir does uh, explain things in a way that I th think is accessible to all levels. But in terms of uh, finding the moves, I, as a 2100 player, did not have a very high batting average, I have to admit. Um, although when he explained it, they, they, I learned a lot. So, Vladimir, could you uh, explain a little bit about, actually, I'll ask you, um, uh, Diba Spivak's question. So thanks for supporting the podcast, Dima. And Dima wrote in to ask you, um, what is it about quiet moves and the less fleshy, flashy parts of chess strategy that appealed to you enough to make it the topic of your first chessable course? So first of all, uh, what I want to say that it's uh, don't worry if you didn't uh, find all the best moves in those examples I was given in this course because uh, most of uh, most of the games were games of mine, and most of the times my opponents, top chess players. Uh, also made mistakes. They didn't find the best moves. So, right. so those training is really for very, very high level chess players. I mean, if you find even half of the best of the right answers, 
from those positions, you are probably 26 past player. So it's 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 not uh, you know my idea was not to um, not make it a sportive competition. I mean, uh, what is important that I want to invite uh, all listeners of this course to think. Uh, about the position to try to find solution because they're very complex, they're very deep, very subtle, often with a lot of ideas. I mean, it's not like solving a mate in five. Yeah, uh, it's much more complex. <laughs> so, so basically, what I wanted is that uh, people who are listening to this course in the meantime, because I give a lot of explanations and my vision of different positions of different elements of chess, uh, that in the meantime they also have a training. You know that that it's like interactive. Uh, that they don't just listen, 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 because I really believe you need to train also at the same time. But again, I, I, I tell you that it's very it's a very difficult subject. Uh, my examples are complex, complicated, and subtle. So don't worry if, if you don't manage to uh, solve them. Um, and uh, why why is this course? Well, first of all, I've uh, finished uh, playing professional chess and. Uh, uh, I have time now, and I would like to share, you know, certain, you know, throughout the professional chess career, a lot of years, I've worked a lot on chess, but also I thought a lot about chess, yeah. I mean, about so trying to conceptualize, to structureize in my mind certain elements of the game. Uh, and, uh, okay, I one one thing, for instance, which I'm totally convinced, uh, basically, you know, the thing is that, Again, there are, there are no kind of uh, you know huge discoveries. That, okay, I told. I mean, I found a way how to play chess. No, it's uh, uh, there are no secrets. Uh, it's not there are no no big secrets. It's not uh, uh, something you can understand and then you just uh, you just beat everyone become world champion. It's a, it's a long process, yeah, of getting better in chess. But anyway, what, what I think is important sometimes is to speak it out, so to say, so to structureize in your mind something which you actually do subconsciously, you know, without without being aware of it, yeah. But I always help. I always thought that it's very helpful to to uh, to get the awareness of it. So in a way, to put all this thinking process in into words, you know, that you actually know what you are doing. Actually, yeah, that you are aware of 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 your of your process, and then uh, first of all, uh, it helps you to improve a lot, and secondly, it helps you to so to say to cure some problems yeah, if you have, because you actually kind of understand uh, the path. You know, once you understand the path, uh, how you got to, to a wrong uh, solution, then maybe it's easier to find uh, the, the that part of the chain. Which is broken, which was broken there. Yeah? So in a way, it is this, and uh, and why is this uh, element, especially prophylactic chess? I would say uh, because it's uh, the most difficult to believe in. It, it's and it is the most important. Uh, the most important because, as I've mentioned, as I mentioned in this course, uh, I believe that once you start to think about it, actually, uh, practically the whole game. What you are doing is that uh, uh, you know you are trying to understand what your opponent wants to do, and actually your move and vice versa, the move of your opponent is always a reaction uh, of of the move of the other player. And basically, it 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 very much depends most of the time on on which exactly move he he made and what he wants to do next. 
So that's why uh, I always had this kind of prophylactic thinking in 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 essence. Yeah, I mean that uh, what I what I one of my main uh, messages which I try to deliver in this course, as simple as it sounds, maybe, but uh, it is very important to get it deep into your mind. You know, if you want to improve in chess, that actually chess is a prophylactic game in itself. That Understanding and preventing uh, the plans of your opponent or the threats of your opponent is actually more important than uh, than realizing your own plans because it's much more difficult. Because it's more difficult, and uh, that is what. And I'm I'm showing lots of examples, and in some of them you can see that it's like this fight is going on every single move for 20 moves in a row. Every single move is actually both players are fighting against plans. Or ideas of the opponent, and uh, of course uh, that is well one of the most difficult uh, elements in chess, I believe, to master. But uh, improving in in this element, independently on on your level, yeah, whatever level you are, will will pay pay off more than in any any other element of chess because that is something which is happening every time. I mean, many times in each game. When actually you're trying to understand uh, what your opponent wants and trying to prevent and so on. I mean, otherwise you can of course study opening. That's all good and it's necessary. But but you know then this opening might not appear on the board. You can study some combination or some uh, beautiful attacks. But position it's queen's gambit and position is very quiet. Yeah, but uh, almost every game, every day you play chess, you are facing this uh, this element of chess is trying to go deep into the position to understand the strategic uh, points of the position and to understand what your opponent wants to do, how exactly, and then to then to coordinate your uh, play, your your plan with, with having this in mind. So I believe it's a core of, of the game of chess and uh, easy to say, uh, uh, of course, but difficult to, to realize is to... To, to explain how, yeah, because it's something very subtle, very you know difficult to structureize it in a mathematical way. But I tried, and I'm given a lot of examples. So if you want, uh, during this course, I try to explain how I see the position, why I play this move. I mean, uh, going very deep into into the position, and uh, maybe for many listeners, it it would uh, feel like it's too complex, too complicated, but. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, shouldn't be too worried about it because uh, the main idea is to get the feel, to get the feeling. Because everybody will do it in his own, on his own level. Then you improve. Then you do it on the better level. Still not perfect because nobody is perfect. Then you improve again. Then you get to, to the next level. You know, like in all other elements of chess. But uh, this is the core of the game, as I've mentioned already, and. It's important to start with a solid base, and what I want to present is a solid base. I want to show this in full depth. What kind of problems top players and their kind of, I, I guess, for uh, club players of amateurs, uh, sort of uh, a goal, yeah, to achieve. So, uh, a certain authority. Yeah? So, what top players are uh, thinking about? In such situation, what kind of questions do they raise? Do they ask themselves, and what kind of answers do they uh, give to those questions? And finally, this whole path from the uh, beginning to the uh, to the best move, or 
build a certain understanding the position and uh, uh, realizing a certain plan. So I'm trying to give this path in many, many hours. And uh, I believe it should be very useful uh, in any case. I mean, in any case, somebody will understand maybe more, somebody a bit less. But I think it's useful for any level because uh, last thing I want to, to tell because my, my own experience. I've been in the, when I was 12, I was invited to Batvinik Kasparov School. Actually, it was the best uh, school for best juniors in Soviet Union yeah, at that time. And uh, we actually, it was not such a big deal <laughs> in a way. I mean, we just had two sessions, 10 days, two sessions a year, two day, 10 days session. And we would just analyze some games. There was no material. They were not teaching us anything. Batvinik and Kasparov, they were present there. And they would simply analyze games and just tell their opinions, you know, about certain positions. And I can tell you that that was uh, much more, so to say, profitable than any amount of books I've ever read. Because, because it's about, you know, understanding, understanding how uh, a, a top player at the time, Gary, was world champion, how do they think? I mean, what kind of, how do they see the position? What kind of plans do they try to realize? And that is something which stays in your subconsciousness, if you want. And, and, and you just become, you just play better all of a sudden. Yeah. And even the last thing, yeah, even when I was already a top 10 player, I remember my first Linares 1993. It was my first top tournament. It was actually Karpov, Kasparov playing there. I would say out of top 10 players, there were nine. So it was really, really top player, top tournament. And I was just 17, I think, uh, was it? Yeah, it was just 17, good old days. Actually, I, I was already number eight in the world and I, I made plus two there. I mean, I had a good result, but I would still, because at that time we had a nice tradition, there were no computers yet, and, and there was an analysis room where the players after their games, they would analyze games yeah, with each other. And I remember I, I, I tried to use any opportunity if I would finish game earlier than Kasparov and Karpov especially. I would just come there, join the analysis, and just sit and listen. How they analyze the game? Because, I mean, uh, it was so incredibly interesting and so fruitful because I just, you know, it was so interesting to see how do they assess the situation, what kind of variations uh, do they uh, see during the game, you know, and, and then so somehow it's uh, because it is so kind of this kind of non-direct learning, but I believe uh, and I strongly believe that this type of learning is, is the most efficient, is, is, is really priceless when, when you learn without noticing that you are learning, yeah? Huh. <laughs> and uh, and or, or even when you don't understand something, what what the player is saying. I mean, let's say Gary, when I was at his school, I mean, I was not understanding it very often, really. Yeah, but all of a sudden, I would realize that in half a year in a tournament, I would actually start to do better in some. I start to become better in some elements of chess, uh, and uh, without me noticing, just because I uh, it just went there somewhere. <laughs> You know, all those words are getting there, some work is going on, and then you become better. And you feel, sometimes you feel like you didn't really get it, what, what he meant. But in fact, uh, you play some game, couple of, and I'm also telling about it in the introduction of this course. And then you realize, oh, you know, no, no, it got there. <laughs> I mean, notice, but actually you are a much better player in this element of chess all of a sudden. And it's clear by statistics, by your games. And so, so I, yeah, that's why I believe from this course, what is 
there are a lot of of course concrete things which I want to tell and which uh, hopefully are very useful for every uh, for the player of almost any level. Well, maybe not Magnus, only not uh, or other top players. But also there is a lot of indirect learning which you can do, which I'm a big fan of uh, because that was I believe analyzing nowadays my career. I believe that was the core of my success. Is much more of this indirect learning than direct learning. That's interesting. And I have a follow-up question about that, but I just want to say that I, I sprung for the video version of this course and I definitely, um, and regular listeners to the podcast will know that often I'm more of a prose type person. I prefer reading, but for this in particular, I think that seeing you explain things is really important. And as you, as you mentioned, it is, um, it is challenging material, but that's all the more reason as I'll be watching the videos multiple times for sure. I mean, it's uh, just great to to see how you break down the thinking process. Well, the, the problem um, is that, yeah, uh, just before you ask the question, I mean, the, 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 the thematic is very difficult. I mean, uh, it is a challenge. I mean, it's a very ambitious project because it's not like, you know, how to make the king. Then it's extremely entertaining. Yeah, you show, okay, some beautiful combination. <laughs> Everybody understands how it goes, but probably you learn much less from it. Yeah, as, as they say, no pain, no gain. So here it's more complex. And... I would be not sincere, and I think it wouldn't be efficient if I would uh, present it in a very light way, like you know, in a very simple way, because it will you will not learn much if 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 you if you make it too simple, just that simple that because uh, it's not simple. I mean, let's be fair, let's be uh, frank. Yeah, it is a difficult, but again, improving there is is extremely important, and uh, so that's why I prepare for for work, you know, for really try, I mean, for a mental effort. It's really a mental effort to try to understand all those sub, sub, subtle details which I'm trying to tell you, but uh, I believe that it will pay off very, you know, enormously. So, sorry, yeah, please ask your question. Oh, no, of course. So, the last major topic I wanted to discuss, Vladimir, of course, is the upcoming World Championship. I'm sure whether on the record or off the record, you've been asked about this uh, a fair amount, but... Uh, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear. So uh, how do you assess the uh, uh, match between Carlson and, and Napomniachi? Uh, Steve, I, first of all, I do not follow, um, you know, like daily chess nowadays. So I see some games and uh, I wouldn't say that you should probably ask uh, this question more to someone who is, who is still involved daily, so to say, in, in top professional level chess. But all in all, uh, you know, again, in World Championship matches, uh, a priori, both players are, you know, very strong. So it's very much, actually, a lot depends on the on the shape you manage to get into the match. I mean, let's say assessing chances half year before, one year before, is very general, you know. I mean, you need to see the latest shape, the latest, you know, trends, how players are playing, and uh, especially... What I usually like to do is to assess it more after two or maximum four games when the match is played. Then I I feel that I can judge already who is in what form and uh, what to expect. But if you want a very very general assessment, okay, what I what I see now, uh, it, I might be wrong, uh, of course. Don't, I mean, but I'm sincere. I I believe. Uh, so to say, so far, the tendency is not in Magnus' favor. I mean, I would say that if after candidates, I'm totally honest with you, I thought he's a quite, well, significant favorite, 60-40, I was assessing. 
now ISS 50-50, uh, if it continues like, like this, I think uh, I would say NEPA would be a favorite. I mean, by the beginning wow. of March, 60-40, I would say. Because I so think the what trend is... is not in his favor now. Because I, I think, it's my opinion, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, I don't know, but I think that NEPA improved a lot in, in I see since candidates, uh, I, I saw his last uh, rapid tournaments and, and it's really good. I mean, he's really uh, playing better than candidates because frankly, again, I'm, I'm sincere. I, I think that his candidates that play, I was not very, very impressed by his play. By result, yes, by play, no. And, but now he's really playing better. I mean, now he's a really serious force. And uh, again, being honest with you, I think that with Magnus, the tendency is other way around. I, I think that, uh, I mean, of course, his still level is, is very high, but I believe that, uh, yes, his play deteriorated last year. I mean, pure play. I don't talk about results, in my personal opinion. And so it's like, Two trains which are going, you know, in uh, you know, in opposite, and somehow it's like one is going like this, another going like this, and maybe even if started here, but they're already here, you know, and if the trend continues, it can get there. You see what I mean? So if I would be Magnus, I would very seriously uh, think on uh, how to change this trend because it, I mean, uh, I, I, if he does it, he would still be a favorite. Yeah, if not, it can end not well for him. That's my that's my opinion. But uh, okay, and as we might be very original and uh, and a bit abstract and yeah, uh, but I'm check the games and frankly, in Magnus play, I start to see a certain mistakes which I have never uh, was doing before. Of course, it's still fantastic level. I mean, Magnus is a genius. It's absolutely true, but. Uh, I I see some very very you know dangerous for him things happening and uh, yeah. yeah so so okay if he managed to get rid of it it's one story but but it's been already for some time and uh, it's not easy when when it takes a long time you know to change the trend of course he's capable he's an absolutely magnificent player yeah but for now yeah I, I would say that. Uh, so at this moment of time, I would consider chances as completely equal at this moment. Of wow. Time. That's fascinating. And we should say for listeners, we're recording this um, on August, I believe, I mean, July 28th. It's uh, And the World Cup has just reached the final eight. So the form that Magnus shows in these subsequent matches could could alter this assessment, of course. Um, it's a yeah. fluid situation, but but I appreciate yeah. your insights. Yeah, that, and that's I, not, by the way, based on this event, because I, I'm, yeah, uh, my personal, again, maybe uh, people will be uh, feel that I'm biased. I'm not actually, or, or feel that uh, I'm too harsh, but I, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not convinced with his play in the World Cup. Uh, so far, so far, and uh, it's kind of. But but there is a very important Stavanger tournament. I believe that that would be very interesting for me and for others probably to see, uh, because yeah, I guess it's ten games or something. So and it's maybe the last big tournament before the World Championship match, and it will be very interesting to see uh, what kind of you know form and how the play will uh, change of both players because they both are playing there. But for now. Mm, yeah, it seems to me that uh, yeah, 
as I told that uh, with NEPA, clear improvement, clear, absolutely, I can see. Uh, it doesn't mean that it will continue going up and up, but it's already much better than, than half a year ago with Magnus. I don't see it, to put it mildly, so it's a bit, yeah, it's, but yeah, again, probably other top players would have a totally different opinion about it. Uh, and uh, there is nobody right or wrong. I just express my opinion. Maybe I'm, I'm wow. it's, well, you know, I'm professional. It. I'm professional. I, I, I've been there for a while and, uh, um, yeah, so it at least has some value, my opinion, but, uh, yeah, again, don't take it as a ultimate. Truth. And a related question from supporter of the podcast, Cody Noble, Cody wrote in to ask, he said, in a recent interview, you mentioned that your championship years were not your most pleasant or happy years. And after the losing, after losing the title, things seem to be back on track for you. How different it is is it to be the world chess champion as opposed to being a super GM? What are the drawbacks to being the world champion that you experienced? Well, there are two points. First of all, it depends on the character. I mean, I actually, yeah, I'm not a character who was searching for fame, for glory, or for public attention. It's just not my type of person. So for, for, for people who are Happy, I mean, who like it, yeah, who likes it, and there are some for them probably it gives an additional uh, push, you know, be, being a world champion. For me, it was more of a minus, uh, but mainly the, the, you know, we have to consider the situation there. I mean, it's totally different to what is now, yeah. Now there are clear, clear cycle, everything is all is clear according to the rules. Right. When I became world champion, it was such a total mess with different. Uh, with different uh, titles, with different uh, feed uh, classical, with uh, a lot of fights, a lot of intrigues. Uh, frankly, lots of forces fighting against me personally. So it was not a funny, <laughs> a funny world championship, I would say, period. Yeah, in this sense, it was extremely interesting. And I'm frankly, yeah, even if my from the chess point of view, there were good moments, but it could have been better, my world championship period. But uh, I'm very happy with what I managed to achieve, uh, the unification. And finally, that we came back to a normal cycle when everything is clear, everything is according to the rules. I, I really set this goal for me and uh, met a lot of, uh, had a lot of problems because of it, because it was not really uh, to everyone's taste, let's put it this way. And, but finally, what I see now is something which I personally wanted to see when I became world champion. And, and whether, of course, it was not fully my, my you know, uh, it was, well, but maybe some part of it, uh, of this success, that in my opinion, we have a successful, quiet, clear, standard world championship. Everything, everybody knows what, what he's doing, when, and everything goes according to the rules. For maybe young audience, I have to, mentioned that it was by far not the case at that time and you can check yeah. of historical materials on it so um uh actually yeah so i mean for nowadays world champions it's of course definitely easier uh so maybe if i would have been world champion now maybe yes maybe it would have been uh, less difficult than at that time but at that time it was uh, it was quite something with a lot of you know, strange things happening when I was throwing out the whole uh, championship. When I even at some point uh, my rating was, uh, you know, from the rating list, 
Uh, they were quite some stories. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was very uncompromising in my position, and that was uh, causing some reactions from different sources. So it was tough time, but good good times. I mean, all in all, I'm very happy that I had this experience. But uh, I don't uh, I don't wish any world champions like Magnus now, maybe some in future, to go through all this again. I hope it will not be needed. Okay, excellent insights. Uh, Vladimir, we're, we're over time. I have three more questions, I think, from the Patreon yes, mailbag. Please. Would you be okay? To... Sure. Awesome. Sure. Thanks so much. Um, so the first one is from David Lazarus, who asks, he says, do you believe it's possible for players past their 60th birthday to complete, compete in the top echelon of chess right now? I mean, what do you mean by top echelon? Uh, uh, become world champion, definitely not. Uh, being in top 20... No, probably not. Top 100, yes, probably. No, because yeah. after all, chess is also, you know, it's not only about knowing how to, uh, where to put your piece. It's about being able to do it <laughs> physically. Right. No, I mean, that, right, <laughs> no, chess is a game of concentration also, you know, and a game of chess requires a long, long ability to concentrate in a long period of time. And that is becoming more and more of an issue with age. I mean, that is a problem. Uh, also, of course, health, some other priorities, kids, family, that's also, yeah. But uh, the main point is that everybody with age starts to experience some more and more concentration lapse, yeah, because you just uh, all of a sudden, you know, you, you, your physics, whatever, your, you know, nerve system, maybe who knows what, but it doesn't hold it so well anymore. So from time to time, you just start to make blunders. I mean, terrible blunders, which and I, I started to notice it after 40 myself, and uh, just absolutely, which has nothing to do with chess, with your level, it just at some point you, you know, like, switch off for a few minutes, and then you switch on, but it's too late, yeah? And when it starts, usually it happens more, more and more often, then it's just difficult to compensate, yeah? Because it's like you're giving handicap uh, to your younger opponents who are also very strong, yeah? You're like given two points from the beginning of the you know that <laughs> there will be one right. or two games when you just uh, totally lose concentration at some point and will probably just blunder. And and they will not. So at the beginning, you're minus two. <laughs> it's very difficult <laughs> to compete. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, those things, but you can still play on the high level, of course. Yeah. I mean, you, as I think Vasily Smyslov once put it, uh, he said that, okay, once, uh, once somebody learns how to play chess well, he will not unlearn. Yeah, he will not. Uh, yeah. He will not forget it. But then it's also about performing, and performing it's also sport. Yeah, it's not only a game; it's sports, and it's also very demanding, even physically. So that's why, yeah, I feel now. I think my understanding is still, yeah. I mean, on the high level, theoretically, I can fight with almost anyone now, but practically, I just don't have the energy and the concentration for it. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and on a related question, uh, Joe Salmon wrote in to ask, what are your thoughts on last year's Legends of Chess? Now, that was a invitational tournament with lots of uh, legends of the game like yourself, Peter Lecoe, Boris Gelfand, Peter Svidler, Vasil Avanchuk, Ivanchuk, excuse me, as well no, as was, uh, top mm-hmm. players like Magnus and Anish. No, it, Go was, ahead. It, it was a great tournament. I really liked it. I mean, it was very tough because nine days in a row, it's not easy. Of course, at, at our age, but it was a great event. I would love to participate again once, uh, you know, in such an event. 
but of course, yeah, it requires I would need to prepare even physically and to hold this tension. But actually, for me, I think it was very interesting event. The only problem, I mean, again, don't take it as an excuse, but it's just true that actually it was quite quite a, quite a bad circumstances for me because it was I think in July or August, yeah, I think was was played. Yeah, I'd have to check. July, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was exactly the biggest hit we had, you know, in Switzerland. And uh, in Switzerland, you cannot have actually uh, air conditions at home inside the apartment because of this, you know, it pollutes the air or something. So basically, you wow. know, it was like every day 30, 35. And, uh, yeah, I was, frankly, you know, I was very often uh, taking shower in between games because just, you know, I was sitting with the towel nearby me so from time to time you know <laughs> take away so and then just run to shower to take a quick shower before the second the, the next game so it was a little bit uh, difficult on top of of very strong opponents and of course me already not playing at the level i used to play even though i i actually had good chances to qualify for the last four i didn't manage but all in all i i enjoyed it it was difficult of course but i enjoyed it and i would love to repeat it i think it's a very interesting event I mean, I think many people want to see the the grandpas like me and Vish, you know, our generation <laughs> uh, fighting even uh, with each other and with young players because I think that in a short term, in one tournament, you know, if we are prepared and if it's not, we physically hold it, we can still manage it. Of course, in the long run, it's difficult, but uh, during the whole year. But uh, I think it's like this clash of generation. I, I hope uh, Chess 24 will make uh, once again this tournament because I think it was a success. Yeah, I agree. I would love to see it again. It's always fun to see the uh, the older guys get out there. Um, and a question from Timothy Ha, who's uh, Timothy says, I've seen some of my businessman friends sharing posts on social media about playing Kramnik in private simuls in Russia. Have you faced any good master level players there? And also, what do you think of uh, people with of amateurs, people with full-time jobs other than chess, spending time studying the game and playing in tournaments? What kind of chess improvement can they be looking for if they will never become grandmasters or even titled players? For the first question, yes, yeah, sometimes I do such exhibitions. By the way, by far, not only in Russia, in other countries also. Uh, I do sometimes, and uh, sometimes you, yeah, you realize that there are some very good chess players, I mean, or prominent figures in other areas, but they like they really love chess and they are quite good at chess actually. Um, I have a few friends who are well big, quite big level businessmen and so on, and they're actually like 2,200, 2,300 level players. So yeah, that's a, but for me, you know, when I give a simultaneous, it's more like a social kind of exchange. It's you know, I think that people they like it and I like to you know to give them this chance to meet me, to play a game, to communicate and to spend a good time and maybe memorable time for them. So that's more of a social event than the really competitive. Yeah. And uh, about uh, the second question, again, we, I think we spoke about it at the very beginning of our podcast, but it's about uh, what do you want from chess? Yeah, I mean, chess is not as life in general, but, uh, but let's talk about chess. It's not about... Uh, Winning, uh, making points, money, I don't know, rating. It's not that. At the essence of it, it, it you need to, to enjoy it. Yeah, you, you like it. And it's, of course, everybody wants to improve. Uh, top players, professional players, but also amateurs. But and, and, and they would improve, I mean, as much if they work on chess and so on. But 
at, at the end of the day, it's not the goal, in fact. Yeah, the goal is a process. Yeah, the process of of enjoying, of feeling that you, you know, you find some nice combination in your, you know, even five minutes game on internet. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you won a, a nice game against the opponent who is higher rated than you. You enjoy it. You study a certain, I uh, will combination. You like it. That's uh, that's the main point of the game. You know, so it's a little bit, you know, nowadays world is a bit too fixated on. On numbers, yeah. I, I, in my opinion, I'm very conservative, old-fashioned in this sense. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, numbers are numbers. I never cared. Uh, I mean, what am I standing? You know, in history of chess, or what is my rating? Ten best, twenty best. I don't care. So, I mean, it, it's not the point. The point is that I, I, if you like it, if you enjoy it, I mean, just do it. I mean, uh, that's why you need. Do it because it's a nice thing to do. It also, you know, it's a good exercise for brain. It's uh, healthy, you know, uh, not traumatic. And <laughs> and and at the yeah. same time, if you enjoy it, that is the main the main thing, you know. So uh, some everybody has different uh, uh, ceilings, so to say. Yeah, and also it very much depends on how much time you have. Yeah, some people have more time to work to study, some less. So. Uh, again, if you study one, only have time for two hours a week, you will not achieve grandmaster level anyways. It's just not possible. Yeah, I wouldn't as well if I would be studying, you know, one hour a week. So, so you should not think about it. Then. But uh, I think what is in general uh, very pleasant for everyone is to try to to feel that you are you understood something. You are a little bit at least better players than one week ago, yeah, one month ago. And that is already something. And then just leave it and see what happens. You like it. You you feel like you're improving at least a little bit. Very often, I mean, and then just uh, let's see. That was my attitude uh, from the early uh, age. And you see, sometimes it can happen that uh, the ceiling is pretty high, as in my case. You, know, you never know. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, before you start. So I, I would... Uh, I would uh, not advise to set some goals, especially for not for non-professional players. So, okay, now in one month I want this rating, in two months I want this title, I don't know, feed the master. Just forget, relax. I mean, uh, enjoy chess, improve, and it comes. And if it doesn't come, uh, it's okay also. Yeah, it's, it's not the end of the day. At least you, you enjoyed what you were doing. Amazing advice there. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great point. Um, and one last question. You, of course, you mentioned, as, as we said earlier in the course, you mentioned the influence that Karpov had on you. Um, and Cody Noble uh, also noticed that and wrote in to ask. He said he watched an interview where you mentioned the player that had the most influence on you growing up was former world champion Anatoly Karpov due to his best games collection being the only chess book you had. Um, he was, of course, an absolute star in Soviet Russia. So Cody wonders what it was like for you to get to play him for the first time and whether you had met him prior to this encounter. Uh, yes, no, of course. But it, it also I learned a lot from Kasparov and other players, Fischer and so on. But just that Karpov was my first. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, my first book was on Karpov. So of course, that was the most maybe, you know, most memorable. And also it builds you in a way, your, your vision of chess. Yeah? So it just happened accidentally. It's not that Karpov is better than Kasparov or worse. No, I mean, again, I don't like these definitions. Better, worse, uh, genius, uh, fantastic players, boss. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
who cares who is you know who has more rating <laughs> or so on it's uh, but uh, it just happened like this but then i've learned from other players especially i was in kasparov school so i've learned a lot from him as well and with karpov yeah then then the first time i i played with him but you know i was already a strong player so it was not like actually i played with gary uh, for the first time when i was 12 in a simul he was given a simul to the i think it was five boards or something to the pupils of, of the school and I played uh, my first game with Gary. I lost it with Black, I, and then I made a draw with White in the next simul, the next session of our school. So actually, I met him. Yeah, I played with him when I was twelve. Yeah, that was much more memorable because that for me was really amazing. You know, at the age of twelve, playing with Kasparov in a simul, but in a real, not like twenty boards, but with blocks. You know, it's serious simul. Yeah. So, uh, but with Karpov, yeah, remember it was exactly with Linaris, nineteen ninety-three. And uh, yeah, it was kind of, uh, I remember very well this feeling. Okay, I was already doing well. I made draw with Kasparov and I was, I think, on plus one. Actually, I think we played in penultimate round of this tournament. And Karpov was in the second place, I think, after Kasparov. Kasparov won the tournament. And then, uh, yeah, of course, I mean, I knew Karpov is an amazing player in general, and especially in end games, in positional play. I was black and we played some opening. It went very quickly to an end game, kind of a little bit better for him. For he was playing white, equal, no, not uh, uh, something like that. Yeah, and then you know, all of a sudden, I totally outplayed him. <laughs> and actually, it was for me such a shock. I, I somehow, I you know, I was not. Uh, I never had uh, too much ego, you know, in the sense that I, I was quite uh, modest. You know, I, I never felt like I'm a great player already or something. So that actually made me feel that since he's not not a bad player still, you know, <laughs> actually next year he made, he made this famous ten and a half out of thirteen. Yeah, so he was clear second in the world, and I managed to outplay him completely in the quiet end game. So I got the, the winning position. Then the game was adjourned after 60 moves. It was still it was still a German. The last I think big tournament I played with a German. And then it was probably winning, but he had drawing chances in a very interesting end game, which I analyzed the whole night. Uh, but then he just he was defending incredibly, just finding all the all the time on the moves during the you know the next day. And I was probably a bit tired because I had barely slept. And finally, he managed to save it. I think like it was more than hundred moves. So, but in a way, it was a very memorable game. I think there is on internet even a photo of us playing this game. And of course, <laughs> from one point of view, disappointing because I should have won, and I, I was, you know, I was winning at some point already by force. Uh, from other point of view, uh, it was an incredible lesson, and also very. I was proud that I could actually, you know, not only fight. But actually, Elmas did such a player with Black uh, at the time, and uh, but also a good lesson of how well such players they defend. You know, for me it was you know it was amazing because I never never yet uh, faced such a level of resistance. You know, and uh, you know that it seems lost, but he's finding only moves all the time. You know, it just doesn't let me win by force. You know, during like. 40 moves in a row and just and one day you make a mistake so it was a very instructive very memorable game for me uh that's true but then we played a lot uh, uh, and finally okay not as much as with gary of course i played much more with gary uh but uh with Karpo we played yeah i mean classical maybe like 15 games something like that i think and finally we had equal score we won twice each 
and uh, the, re the rest were draws. But then he already was older and he kind of retired from chess. Uh, but yeah, it was, of course, the first one by far was the most memorable. Yeah, I remember very well. Even analyzing this endgame at night in my room, uh, yeah, the whole night. Even I remember exactly the endgame. So, yeah, that was... Wow. And did you talk to him after the game much? Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, of course. Because he, uh, yeah, I mean, at some point, because when finally he managed to make a draw, and uh, he just immediately, when we agreed to a draw, he pointed out at some point that I could win just immediately by force. He said, you know, if you would play this move, I was going to stop the clock. And, uh, wow. yeah, and I saw, but, yeah, and, and actually I was probably just tired because it was a very simple trick because, okay, I thought it doesn't work because of something, and then I just missed a very simple trick, which, so, actually, of course, I saw this move. It was the most natural. So, actually, he was, he kind of, uh, put the salt on my, uh, you know, <laughs> right, you won't, yeah, and yeah, <laughs> when telling that actually, if you would play this, which of course was my first game, he, he, he was going to stop the clock, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but in any case, yeah, it was of course all such things, you know, meetings with top players, with such great players, listening to them, playing against them, it's uh, you know, all in all, it's priceless, yeah, because they, they teach you. You know, even if they don't want to teach you, I mean, if, even it's not the intention, but actually they do. If you if you have the ability to learn, if you have this kind of mind which swallows this kind of lesson, which understands, you know, uh, what is going on, what was your mistake, and so on. So they teach you better than anyone else. Yeah. So in this sense, uh, even one that one game was extremely educational. Amazing. All right. I swear this is the last question, but sure. hearing you say that made, made me remember um, you, of course, as we mentioned earlier, worked uh, with Kasparov in 1995 for his match with Anand. And uh, Napomniachi has worked with Carlson a bit in 2012 and 2013. So hearing you talk about what you absorbed from people made me remember, do you feel like you it gave you a competitive advantage in the match that you'd been on the inside seeing Kasparov uh, prepare? And do you think that that might be the case for Nepo as well? No, the competitive advantage, if any, uh, uh, there is no objective competitive advantage because I think he 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 have learned more from uh, about me than I learned from him because actually I was, you know, showing him some lines, analyzing for him. So I mean, uh, but obviously he was just busy, you know, having with the other task which was at that time more important, uh, you know, uh, defending his title, but. Uh, Finally, it's about who who learns more. I mean, uh, from it, yeah. It's it's there is no objectivity, but in any case, it's we shouldn't over uh, overestimate this uh, you know this kind of understanding, working together, understanding a player. Because especially if we are talking about Nepo and uh, Magnus, it's been almost ten years ago. They're totally different players already. Chess have changed a lot. Right. So okay, you can you can maybe uh, if you are more like refined in the sense you have better feel for it. Yeah, maybe you can draw certain general conclusions about the player. But first of all, very only very general. And secondly, it can also be misleading because a, play, a player and a person can change a lot since then. And you might maybe base your preparation or base your ideas how to play against him 
if you are doing it uh, based on the uh, your experience 10 years ago you can actually make a big mistake because you can all of a sudden come to a match and, and face a totally different human being and a player and so i don't think it is uh, i think you can uh, learn much more by deeply analyzing games of your opponent uh, during the last two three years that is that gives you much more information than uh, but as to uh, Guardian, that time, yeah, I'm not sure it gave me too much uh, of advantage. Or actually, that I drew so many conclusions of it. No, I mean, what 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 it really helped me is to understand how how to work. You know, I mean, the intensity of work and the depth of it. Yeah, that was something new to me, and that gave me a lot. And actually. Just half a year after working with Gary for this match, I, I, I became number one in the world. I mean, I just raised like 30, 40 yellow points in half a year because somehow, but not because I was using zero openings, because actually all openings were not part of my repertoire. So there was nothing I, I, <coughs> I used opening-wise, but just, uh, you know, I understood something about the working process in general. Not necessarily for the World Championship match, but in general, the discipline and the, the intensity uh, of work that was really uh, very profitable for me to, to, to learn. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, so but I don't think it, it made a, any really big effect on the on the result of the match finally with Gary five years after. Okay. Um... Good to know. And yeah, that's the kind of insight we can only get from you. So just want to thank you for all of your time, Vladimir. This has been absolutely incredible, real honor for me. Um, so really appreciate it. The course is called Thinking in Chess, a how-to guide available from Chessable. Uh, for If you would like more insights from Grandmaster Kramnik, I definitely recommend it. So thank you so much, Vladimir. My pleasure. All the best to, to you and to all, all uh, people who listen to this podcast. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible, most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show. Did you guys know that there's still people who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast? There's even chess players who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast. So we need to fix that. And the ways to do that include writing positive reviews on podcast platforms or YouTube comments telling friends, all that stuff makes a difference in helping spread the word about the show. But of course, I most of all want to thank people who provide financial support to the show. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So without further ado, I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Heath, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Farhan Thawar, Barasawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Sell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, Lucio Casada Silva, the law officers of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, 
the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, Grandmaster Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gerson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Ace Baega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio K. Leonfort, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard, Lynn, Brian, Chase, Brian, Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Chad Hilton, Chesspats of Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Tennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Padilla, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latarte Lavoir, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Bihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastio, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Takumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Joe Dasano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Amalyanovas, aka Photo Chess, Mark Shaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Cassie Passanen, Paul Blaine, Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited of Switzerland, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel and Publishing Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCagan, Seth Ruzica, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatev Abrahamian, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, 
Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Jivko Storyanov. Thanks to you all for the support, and we will catch you all next week. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.